This is hell. Good morning. Thanks for listening to This is Hell. I am not your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. My name's Lindsay Gorey and I'm filling in today because Chuck has stomach upset. Not sure how much more he wants me to go into there. I don't think I know that much more. Just that he's at home and doesn't want to leave his bathroom. So I'm here on short notice uh, by myself. I I don't know. I, I have nothing planned. I'm so we were going to have an interview with Rebecca Gordon, a philosophy professor at the University of San Francisco. And I even just went into the studio and went through Chuck's trash can to try and just like read the stuff that he usually reads, but all the papers are mixed up, so. (laughs) Rebecca Gordon received her PhD from the Graduate Theological Union. Her latest book is American Nuremberg, the US officials who should stand trial for post 9-11 war crimes. She publishes regularly at tomdispatch.com, a project of the Nation Institute. So Rebecca was going to be on to talk about her Tom Dispatch article called American Exceptionalism on Full Display, Why This Country Might Want to Lower Its Expectations. But we're going to have to postpone that. So instead, on this live stream and to be played on the radio this weekend, we will be playing back. Rebecca's old interview, which, like, I just realized I haven't even pulled up because I was too busy posting about it on Twitter. So, I'm gonna be multi- trying to multitask, download this, and, uh, and talk at the same time. So, there are a couple things left that I can still talk about without Chuck here, like the question from hell. So I'll go ahead and read that. This week's question from hell. What advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? What advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? So I suppose I will wait until after the interview to figure out whose answers to read next. So if you're listening and you want to get your response in, you got time. Facebook or Twitter. Pick your social media of choice. So the other thing is Rotten History is usually read today, so I will be reading that later after this interview is played back which i suppose i can tell you what that is where'd it go i just had it it's funny because if you google rebecca gordon my first result anyways is maybe it's just my google account rebecca gordon astrology comes up first we're not interviewing an astrologer we're interviewing a uh philosopher so which are they the same thing 
<laughs> Controversial sentence there. Uh, <laughs> so, anyways, I'm trying to find... I just had it. There it is. Okay, the case for the this episode from May 7th, 2016, is called The Case for Prosecuting the Bush Administration for Post-9-11 War Crimes. This is hell. America needs a Nuremberg trial, or so our next guest argues. And the fact that we haven't had one yet is priming the U.S. to torture again. Here to tell us what we can do to permanently stop the U.S. from ever torturing again and to tell us why we haven't done it already, Rebecca Gordon is the author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11. Rebecca teaches philosophy at the University of San Francisco. Welcome back to This Is Hell. I'm pretty sure, Rebecca, you have been on our show before, but our records got destroyed in a horrible hard, hard drive crash we had. Oh, I know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> and if I haven't been, I wish I had, and perhaps we can do it again. Yes. Let's see how this one goes. Exactly. Uh, so you write how you were uh, not thrilled with the title American Nuremberg compared with the unimaginable scale of World War II, including the genocidal final solution, the Allied rebombing of Europe and Japan, and the radioactive ruins of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, the crimes of the war on terror seem to be of a much smaller order, but I have come, this is you writing, I have come to appreciate the title of this book and the frame it has offered for this project. So to what degree do you think the title is fair or unfair? I mean, aren't the crimes of the war on terror far less than anything that happened during World War II? Well, if we think about the number of deaths in World War II, if you take into account both Europe and Asia, we're talking about something like 85 million people and the majority of them civilians. Nevertheless, I think that we sometimes underestimate the number of deaths and the human misery that's been caused by the so-called war on terror, especially when we take into account one of the biggest crimes, which almost never goes named as a crime, which is the invasion of Iraq. And one of the things that was made very clear in the Nuremberg trials was that the first crime of the three major areas that the Nazis were charged with was what was called a crime against peace. And it was a crime of making an unprovoked, unjust war. And this is one of the things that I think we need to look at when we look at the crimes committed in the so-called war on terror. But even more than that, I think what Nuremberg did was establish a precedent for the first time really in human history that says internationally as a species, as a community of nations, we have the right and the responsibility to bring to justice people who commit unimaginable crimes and who cannot be tried in their own countries for a variety of reasons. And so Nuremberg created this precedent that said that the response to terrible criminal acts should not be more war, but should be, in fact, a criminal justice proceeding in which people are held accountable. And they created a process. They created a set of rules by which they would proceed. They created later a set of principles that we call the Nuremberg Principles, which actually established some of the principles under which people were tried. And basically they said, let us restore a rule of law to a world that has seen just the most harrowing of, of death and destruction. So, yeah, I think Nuremberg is still relevant, and I think it's still important. And I think also that 
given that the United States is the most powerful country in the world. We have the world's biggest economy, the world's biggest military. We spend more than uh, on military than the next three nations combined. We are the world have the world's biggest nuclear arsenal. We have an archipelago of bases, military bases stretched all over the world. The rest of the world quite understandably looks at us, especially with <clears throat> our current Republican nominee, and says, what are they going to do next? And it's partly because there have been no consequences for what we have done in the past that that question continues to be asked. And to, so that's why I think we need an American Nuremberg. To you, to you, what explains why this legal process of like a, Nur a Nuremberg-like trial, what explains why that was abandoned when it came to the crimes of 9-11? Why, instead of prosecuting this as a war, why wasn't this prosecuted as a crime, in your opinion? Well, that's a really good question. And of course, it's one that many of us asked at the time, although there wasn't a whole lot of space for that kind of question asking, because that's exactly what... Um, I believe it was a crime, and it should have been prosecuted that way. There are a number of barriers, however. Number one is that, um, in fact, the attacks of 9-11 sadly actually fit into a plan and an agenda that the Bush administration, especially with Vice President Dick Cheney, had already entered the, house, the, the White House holding. So they came into the White House already prepared to launch a war against Iraq. And by the day after September 11th, Dick Cheney was already talking about the fact that this now gave the administration the opportunity to do something that they wanted to do anyway, which was to attack Iraq. And you might say, well, where's your evidence for that? That sounds like a lot of conspiracy nonsense. So let's look at the written documented evidence. For example, as far back as the 1990s, there was a group called the Project for a New American uh, Century, and this included people like Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, people who came to be the major players in the Bush, George W. Bush White House. They wrote a document in which they proposed to the Clinton administration that the United States should adopt a new a new strategy in the Middle East, and that that strategy should consist of eliminating the heads of Iraq and then later Syria, and essentially putting in our own governments in their place and reconstructing the Middle East along lines that they believed would be more friendly to U.S. interests and, frankly, to U.S. oil interests. Then, when Dick Cheney came into the government and brought along with him Paul Wolfowitz and Elliot Abram and um, a whole clutch of neoconservatives who had been actively working in the think tank world while they were in um, a little bit of purgatory. And when they came back into the White House in March, one of Cheney's big charges under the Bush administration was to create the new National Energy Plan. And so in March of 2001, so we're talking months before September 11th, he met with the top officials of the U.S. oil agencies, uh, oil companies. And you, you may not remember, but at the time, before September 11th, this was the biggest political issue that was going in the United States, was the fact that 
Dick Cheney refused to tell the public who the people were that he was meeting with in order to develop this national energy strategy. And it turned out that they were, in fact, the heads of the major U.S. oil companies and oil servicing companies like Halliburton, who um, even went up to Congress and lied and said, oh, no, we never met with the vice president. But what they did was they, in fact, constructed a new energy strategy, which began once again with deposing Saddam Hussein and gaining greater access for U.S. oil companies to the oil fields in Iraq. When September 11th happened, that provided the excuse, the pretext for it took another year or two, another until March of 2003 to actually do the attack on Iraq. But it provided the excuse. It also directly led to the very first cases of torture in the so-called war on terror. If you read the um, reports of the people, both the Senate Intelligence Committee report and a number of wonderful work, wonderful reports done by Andy Worthington, who's a British investigative journalist, very highly respected. His interviews with with people who were being held in Guantanamo, it becomes very clear that the first waterboarding of Abu Zubaydah, the first tortures at Guantanamo, they were all designed to get the people who were being interrogated to say that there was a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. That was what they were looking for. And when eventually people will say anything that you indicate to them you want them to say when they're being tortured, eventually they in fact got people to say these things. And so it sounds almost unthinkable, but in fact, this was an administration that already came into the White House with a plan to essentially attack Iraq and destabilize Syria. And as we've seen, in fact, that plan succeeded, if by success you mean the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, and in the case of Syria, the um, the dislodgement of over half the population of that country. The UN has said that there are 14 million people who have been made refugees by the war in Syria, and 5 million of them are, have actually had to leave the country and, as we know, are camped and perched on the edge of Europe in desperate situation. So this is the fruit of how the Bush administration chose to respond to the attacks of September 11th, uh, you which meant- were terrible crimes. Right. And you mentioned uh, Andy Worthington. Andy's been on uh, This Is Hell several times in the past. You write British British investigator journalist, investigative journalist. uh, Andy Worthington reported in 2009 the Bush administration used Abu Zubaydah's uh, interrogation results to help justify the greatest crime of the administration, the unprovoked illegal invasion of Iraq. Officials leaked to the media that he had confessed to knowing about a secret agreement involving Osama bin Laden, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who later led Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Iraqi autocrat Saddam Hussein to work 
together to destabilize the autonomous Kurdish region in northern Iraq. Of course, it was all lies. Zubaydah uh, couldn't have known about such an arrangement, first because it was, as Worthington says, absurd, and second because Zubaydah was not a member of al-Qaeda at all. So are we now learning then that the intelligence used to justify the invasion and occupation of Iraq was a lie? Is this the smoking gun that we've been looking for to prove that the whole idea of invading and occupying Iraq was based on a uh, a created lie? Well, I wouldn't say we're now learning it. The truth is that we knew it at the time of the invasion. We might not have known specifically about what happened with Abu Zubaydah. And actually, I've got a piece in TomDispatch.com that details his case specifically and talks about how in 2010, the uh, government quietly withdrew every single charge they had made against him, including they say, they say, well, we never claimed that he was a member of al-Qaeda, and we're not claiming he had anything to do with 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. So there's more to that story. But in terms of the smoking gun, I mean, we had Hans Blix, who was the head of the International Atomic Energy Commission, um, and who was agency, who was at the time saying Saddam Hussein is very close to complete compliance with all the requirements about uh, allowing inspections of his weapons manufacturing and so forth. And it was clear at the time that there were no weapons of mass destruction. It was also clear at the time that the story, which we heard over and over again, the, the phrase from the administration and Condoleezza Rice and a number of other people Donald Rumsfeld went on television in the weeks before the invasion and said, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. And so the implication was that Saddam Hussein not only had weapons of mass destruction, but was building or already had nuclear weapons. And then there was this whole story, uh, very complicated, but that supposedly they were buying uranium from the country of Niger, which at the time it was well-known that this, in fact, was a fraud and a fake. And um, so it's not that the smoking gun is just now being discovered, but the fact is that with the release of the Senate Intelligence Committee report, we do know more uh, specifically about how people were tortured into giving this evidence. The reality is, and this is true about many of the of the uh, crimes committed in the so-called war on terror is, yes, they were secret, but they were only semi-secrets. They were available if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post. There was very good reporting in the mainstream media about what the CIA was doing, what was being done at Guantanamo, and it was more a question of was there the political will to actually look at the implications of these reports of what, you know, you could read in the plain old New York Times. Now, it's true, of course, that a lot of it was done in secret. And part of that, I think, and I've written about this in another book called Mainstreaming Torture, but part of what's going on in the context of the kind of now you see it, now you don't way that the Bush administration played around with torture in its public in its public face is essentially to set up this kind of narrative here's the government speaking to us look the united states 
is the leader in human rights in the world. The United States has a good government, a government committed to democracy all over the world. If our government, which is such a good government, is forced to do such terrible things, Think how terrible the people must be that we are doing them to, and think how terrible the danger must be that you, the population of the United States, are in. And so by allowing, perhaps not being happy with it when it first happens, but as the leaks come out, the the Bush administration was very much able to take advantage of that to mold a narrative that said, yeah, it's terrible, and yeah, maybe there were excesses, but look how serious the danger is. And so essentially we became a nation of people who got used to the idea that we should be afraid all the time and that nothing was out of bounds if it meant protecting us from danger. Well, in the English language, we have a word for people who say, do anything as long as I'm safe. We call people like that cowards. And uh, my my book, Mainstreaming, was actually from an academic publisher. And when I suggested that the title should be A Nation of Cowards, they thought that was a little over the top. (laughs) But the reality is that we have been taught to be afraid. And the reality is also there is nothing the government can do, any government can do, in a world of weapons in a world of guns and explosives that can keep us 100% secure. That that dream of security is like the dream of immortality. We are going to die. We are never going to be 100% secure. And the question is, what are we willing to sacrifice for this illusory security? So how responsible then is, you know, let's set aside the Bush administration for a second, but how responsible are the people of the United States for not standing up to torture? And do you think that there is an aspect of something cultural possibly here in the United States? Our tolerance for uh, police abuse and violence, for instance, is, is there something here about the United States that reveals to us that Sadly and unfortunately, the too big of a portion of the American public is actually for torture. Well, you know, it's very interesting how that has changed. And one of the real changes in the years since September 11th is that people in this country are now much more willing to tell pollsters that torture is sometimes or often necessary than they were in the years before September 11th. So there has been a change. And the thing is, then this is the frightening thing, the further away we get in time from the attacks of September 11th, the more comfortable people are in responding to pollsters and saying, yes, torture is sometimes necessary. So it's not just that it was this moment of terror right after those terrible attacks. But in fact, people have gotten more comfortable with it as time has gone on. However, I also think, and I'm really glad you mentioned police, and of course, you've done some work on Homan Square, for example, so you know that Chicago is, um, and, and the John Berger case, Chicago is ground zero for that. But the reality is that we had gotten used to the idea from watching television for many years that in the hands of police when it's necessary to get a perp not to lawyer up and to tell the truth, so to speak, there are things that you can, more in sorrow than in anger, but you can and you must do 
in order to keep the people of the great city of New York or Chicago or wherever it is safe. And so, yes. And the other thing that that, um, I'd like to mention is that any country, any regime that decides that it's going to include torture as part of its arsenal picks out one or two specific groups of people who are legitimate targets. So for the U.S. in the so-called war on terror, it's the target is people that are identified as terrorists. Those people are then marked out as less than human. So in Chile under Pinochet, for example, the people that were tortured, they called them humanoid instead of human beings. In other torture, torture regimes, they are called rats or viruses or um, vermin, things that indicate their non-human status. And in the United States, since before the existence of the country, and with, in fact, the ratification of the Constitution, there has always been one group of people who were singled out and identified as less than human. And in the Constitution, they fact, in fact, each one counted as three-fifths of a human. And of course, I'm talking to the people who were brought from Africa to be enslaved in the United States. And the history of, of slavery and the history of torture in the United States go absolutely hand in hand because the farmers very quickly discovered that unlike the indentured servants they had been bringing over from England who had a promise of getting 50 acres and um, freedom after seven years of labor, the enslaved Africans were not getting that deal. They were never going to be free, and their children and their children's children wouldn't be free. So the only incentive that they had to work was the incentive of physical pain. And so torture beatings, whippings, dismemberments, these things come are at the very root of the institution of slavery. And in fact, black human beings have remained legitimate targets of torture in certain parts and subcultures of the United States to this very day. And so one of the sites of torture where it happens in plain sight, but we don't even think of it as torture, is in the jails and prisons of the United States today. And it's no accident that when the prison at Guantanamo was set up, it was a group of reservists from Cook County, Illinois, who went down to um, to Cuba, to Guantanamo Bay, and helped design that prison. So... Um, there's a direct connection. And I think there's a direct connection in the minds of many, at least white Americans, not necessarily at the conscious level, between people of African descent and to some extent people um, from other countries who are darker people and legitimate targets for treatment that you wouldn't meet out to quote real people. We are speaking with Rebecca Gordon. She is the author of America Nuremberg. Rebecca teaches philosophy at the University of San Francisco. Her previous books include Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States and Letters from Nicaragua. Uh, You write, to this day, the people of the United States have never had a full accounting of all that has been done in our name as part of an apparently endless war on terror. After years of struggle, we finally have the heavily redacted 500-page executive summary of the Senate Intelligence 
Committee's 6,000-page report on the torture mm-hmm. allowed by the CIA, but it contains only a partial accounting of the actions of a single U.S. agency among the many security branches involved in the war on terror. Do you think, well, when or will we ever know what was done in our name by the government in the war on terror? Do we have to wait for a really bad History Channel documentary in about 50 years? <laughs> we'll find out it was aliens. Exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know the answer to that. I think that, I mean, my great fear is that when the knowledge, when historians go back and do the work and uncover the information, all of the principles will be long ago dead and people will say, well, that was then, this is now, whatever now that is, 2020, 2030, and things have changed. And my great fear, of course, is that because no one has been held accountable, in fact, when that history is finally told, nothing really will have changed. I think that there are some possibilities out there that I would love to see. One is, you know, after the Vietnam War, we did actually see some congressional inquiries into both the origins of the war and especially the U.S. conduct in that war, you know, the ways that the United States engaged in, for example, in the Phoenix program and the murder of some 30,000 rural Vietnamese, many of whom were tortured and um, a lot of whom were actually dropped alive from helicopters into the South China Sea. And it's taken many years to establish that history. And of course, the people responsible have never been held responsible. So I'm not, I'm not extremely hopeful that we'll see an official record established anytime soon. I would love to see congressional hearings held. But as long as the Republican Party has a chokehold on the Congress, I don't imagine that's going to happen. And even if we get Democratic majorities back in in Congress, I could imagine, for example, a Pat- Patrick Leahy, the senator from Vermont, if he gets back into the um, the Senate Judiciary Committee and becomes the head of that again, I could see him perhaps or someone like him instituting hearings. But the reality is it's going to be a long time before we have a complete accounting. So we're going to have to go forward with what we do have. And when I say go forward, you know, again, there are a number of possible ways the United States or the the principal people responsible could be held accountable In the legal field, we have a real problem because the ideal and obvious place would be the International Criminal Court. And that's where uh, a number of African leaders have been brought to trial for criminal activities in the course of wars in Africa. Unfortunately, during the Bush administration, the U.S. informed the body that created the ICC that we were retracting our signature from the treaty that created that and that the Senate was never going to ratify the treaty. And so the U.S. is not part of the International Criminal Court, which means, and in fact, Congress went further and passed a law making it illegal for any any U.S. national to cooperate in any way with bringing a U.S. national to trial in the ICC, and in fact said that if any U.S. national were brought to trial in the ICC, our military would be deployed to rescue that person. 
So that's not an option at the moment. <laughs> so that leaves Go federal ahead. prosecution. Also problematic because uh, on the day after that, after President Obama issued his executive orders saying we will no longer use these enhanced interrogation techniques and the CIA must close down its so-called black sites, the next day he said, however, we must look forwards and not backwards. And in other words, he said, we need to close the door on the past and we need to go forward in a new non-torturing world. Sadly, of course, that's not what happened. People are still in prison in uh, Guantanamo. People are still being force-fed who are on hunger strike. And if you've heard anyone describe what that's like, that's a form of torture that happens twice a day. Its only purpose is punitive. And sadly, because there were no prosecutions, there's no reason that this kind of activity won't happen again. One of the things that becomes really clear when you read the memos between the legal staff in the CIA and the Office of Legal Counsel and the, um, and the White House, the CIA is over and over and over again concerned with covering their rear ends, making sure that somebody higher than they are promises they're not going to be prosecuted. There is, however, a little chink in the armor. The very first time um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a glimmer of light in the legal setting. And this isn't in the world of criminal law, but in the world, world of civil law, where people sue each other. So the U.S., signed the UN Convention Against Torture. And part of that convention says that every nation that signs it has to make it possible for people who are victims of torture to seek redress in the courts. In other words, to sue for, um, you know, for some kind of recompense, some kind of remuneration for having been tortured. And up until the last couple of weeks, the Bush administration and the Obama administration during eight, almost eight years, seven years, have resisted any of those suits that were brought in U.S. courts and have said, you know, for reasons of national security, the evidence that would be produced in this is a threat to national security and therefore the suit cannot go forward. For the very first time a couple of weeks ago in a suit that's being brought in U.S. District Court in Washington, the Obama administration did not advance this argument and did not say that the suit should not go forward. So the very first time we're actually seeing someone who was held at Guantanamo, who was tortured, being permitted to sue. And this is, I think, a breakthrough. And I think it's a sign that in the tail end of his last year, President Obama, in a quiet way, is going to do what he thinks he can do in order to allow, at least in the civil, in the civil courts, to allow some form of justice to go forward. Of course, it's very minor, but it's something. And if those cases can garner, you know, some media attention, that will make a difference too. It's a first step, but it's a very small step. You write how there has not been any real public reckoning for those officials, including men and a few women at the highest levels of the government who are responsible for all these deeply troubling actions undertaken by Washington since uh, 9-11. Uh, this impunity all but guarantees that the ne next time our country is seized by a spasm of fear, we can expect more 
crimes committed in the name of national and our own security. As you were saying, uh, President Obama, shortly after taking office, said that he did not want to spend his next eight years litigating the past. To right. you, why doesn't the Obama administration, why didn't the Obama, Obama administration realize that if they did not prosecute those who may have been tortured, it would allow the U.S. to torture again? Or do you think he intentionally did not prosecute, so to leave that option open for the future? Well, of course, I... You know, I'm not privy to the internal workings of of President Obama's um, thought process. But I do have a a theory, a conjecture. And this is my conjecture, which is you'll notice that one of the things that Obama also said he was going to do was close Guantanamo. And here we are seven and a half years later, and he has still not closed Guantanamo. And I think that very early on, one of the things that he discovered is that there are limits to the power even of the president of the United States, especially when that president is an African-American man. And that, um, frankly, the no prosecution was a quid pro quo. I think that was probably the price of getting the CIA to actually obey his order to shut down the black sites and stop using these enhanced interrogation techniques. And that, in fact, um, the the return, what he gave in return was no prosecutions. That's my guess. I can't prove it. I don't have any, you know, I don't have any documentation to prove it, but it's not illogical. The other thing I would say is that we're now talking about 2009, so we're now eight years um, out from the attacks of September 11th, and I think that the reality is that they had pretty much picked up everybody that they were going to pick up and that they had pretty much um, tortured everyone that they were going to torture in relation to those attacks from nine years before. So I don't think they were holding anyone that they wanted particularly to continue to torture. However, I do agree with you that not bringing anyone to justice, no prosecution, impunity, absolutely leaves the um, leaves the way open for doing the same thing in the future. And it also creates a situation in which we've seen a field of Republican candidates who are basically competing with each other to promise to commit the most war crimes if elected. You know, so we have Donald Trump, who's promising war, uh, waterboarding and a hell of a lot worse. Oh, and also promising to murder the families of people he decides are terrorists, because that's what will get their attention. Well, I'm sorry, he's promising to commit murder. This is not something that would have happened if somebody had been held, you know, brought to trial for similar actions in the past. But because there have been absolutely no consequences, it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier to promise to do the same thing the next time. The other thing I'll say is there are other organizations in the government whose workings we really don't know very much at all about. And one of them is the Joint Special Operations Commander, JSOC, which um, Jeremy Scahill, a wonderful um, reporter, has independent journalist, has written about at length. But um, JSOC is operating in a number of places in Africa, and we know for sure that uh, the CIA is training interrogators 
in at least one prison in Somalia, because Jeremy Scahill has written about it. And this is in Mogadishu. There's an underground prison, and the CIA is training the um, rump government of Somalia in quote-unquote interrogation techniques in this prison. So we don't know that the CIA has completely given up uh, or whether it's simply gone back to its old practices of many years of, if not doing the torture themselves, teaching other people how to do it. So I would say, in a long roundabout answer to your question, that I don't know why Obama did it. I have some suspicions, but the result is absolutely that the way is open to continue torturing in the future. Right. That's what I guess the next question would be. How much then will you hold President Obama responsible for any future torture regime instituted by a President Trump? Because Obama refused to, his Justice Department refused to prosecute the torture crimes related to the war on terror. Well, and that's a good question. And in fact, the Convention Against Torture, which we have signed, actually requires prosecutions. That's part of the convention. We not only promise we won't torture people, but we promise that if we do, they will be prosecuted. And so I think that President Obama can be held responsible, if not legally, although I would point out that once you sign and ratify a treaty under our Constitution, that becomes part of the federal law. The Article 6 of the Constitution says ratified treaties are supreme law of the land. So actually, President Obama was bound to uh, uphold every aspect of that treaty, which includes prosecution. You know, President Obama has also continued one of the other crimes of the war that I write about in the book, and that is these unpiloted drone, um, or not p- unpiloted, but remotely piloted drone attacks, assassinations of individuals, which have also claimed the lives of upwards of 3,000 civilians who are in no way connected, except that they happen to be in the wrong place, and the wrong place could very well have been at a wedding at the wrong time, and were killed, murdered by cruise missiles that were shot by kids sitting in bunkers in the Nevada desert half a world away. And so we also have to hold President Obama personally responsible because he is personally, and we know this because it was in the New York Times, he has personally signed off on those deaths. And so sadly, although I hold the Bush administration much more responsible, sadly, the Obama administration is not without its own um its own crimes in the so-called war on terror. Again, your article at Tom Dispatch this week was headlined, The Al-Qaeda Leader Who Wasn't the Shameful Ordeal of Abu Zubaydah, uh, while at The uh, Nation, the headline was, The CIA waterboarded the wrong man 83 times in one month. None of the allegations against Abu Zubaydah uh, turned out to be true. That didn't stop the CIA from torturing him for years. You write, Zubaydah's had the uh, dubious luck to be the subject of a number of CIA firsts, the first post-9-11 prisoner to be waterboarded, the first to be experimented on by psychologists uh, working as CIA contractors, one of the first of the agency's ghost prisoners, that's detainees hidden from the world, including the International Committee of the Red Cross, which under the Geneva Conventions must be allowed access to every prisoner of war. And one of the first prisoners to be cited in a memo written by Jay Beebe for the Bush administration on what the CIA could legally do to a detainee without supposedly violating U.S. federal laws against torture. So if it weren't for 
wasn't for Abu Zubaydah, where would the war on terror be? Or would the Bush administration have simply found someone else to do what they did to Zubaydah? Well, they did do it to other people. I mean, he was not the only person who was waterboarded. Um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is constantly described in the media as the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. I have no idea if he was or he wasn't, but he was waterboarded 183 times. I don't know what this fascination with the number 83 is, but um, so I don't think, I think if Zubeda hadn't been picked up, that other people were being and would have been treated in the same way. They were also doing the same, the same things in Guantanamo for the same purposes. And in fact, in testimony before um, the Senate Armed Forces Committee back in 2009, it was revealed that the reason that Donald Rumsfeld signed off on the famous memo that allowed stress positions and sleep deprivation and a variety of other tactics, he um, that the reason why they wanted to increase the pressure on the people they were holding at Guantanamo was exactly the same thing. They were frustrated because they couldn't get anybody to say there was a connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein between 9-11 and Iraq. And so, you know, you might ask, well, they were going to attack Iraq anyway. Why did they need somebody to say it? Why didn't they just lie and say they'd said it? And this goes to the deep psychology of how people who do these things convince themselves they're doing the right thing. And I think that in some strange way, they actually needed to hear somebody else say it. And that just made it so much more powerful, even though it was t- testimony from a torture, it was more it made their own internal rationalization more legitimate. But that's, again, internal psychology of people I don't know anything about. So it's a mere guess. I will say, though, that the torture started because they wanted to find this connection. One last question for you, Rebecca. We have been speaking with Rebecca Gordon. She is the author of America Nuremberg. Prior to her academic career at the University of San Francisco, where she teaches philosophy, Rebecca spent decades working as an activist in peace and justice movements in Central America, South Africa, and the United States. Her previous books include Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States, and Letters from Nicaragua. And you have to check out her article that was published in both Tom Dispatch and The Nation about Abu Zaveda. Just one last question for you, Rebecca. And mm-hmm. as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write in your book how shortly after 9-11, we began to get used to the idea that keeping us safe would require, as Vice President Dick Cheney put it, working the dark side. There were no real objections when Kofer Black, director of the CIA's counterterrorism uh, center, told Congress, after September 11th, the gloves are off. Did we even blink when on November 5th, 2001, Newsweek's liberal pundit Jonathan Alter wrote that it was time to think about torture? There were a few cautionary remarks from people who cared about civil liberties, but eventually most of us settled back into a new and extraordinary normal. How much do you blame liberal pundits like Jonathan Alter as they are supposed to be the voice of the left at times of great tension in the U.S.? I mean, can we expect liberals again to roll over the next time they're confronted about their values after a terror attack? Will these values prove, as John Stewart pointed out, to be nothing but hobbies for liberals? I can't predict the future, but my answer would be that I would expect 
that the same thing will happen the next time, that people will forget what all the excesses were, what all the crimes that were committed were, and that they will roll over and say, America first, save our lives, whatever it takes. And that's why I think it is so important that we tell the story, tell the history, and remind ourselves that this should not happen again. I don't have a lot of faith in the liberal press. I do, however, have faith in the people that I've worked with. So early in 2002, actually it was October of 2001, uh, four of us sat in my living room and said, what can we do now that it's going to be all war all the time? And we said, well, the talents that we actually have are as writers and editors. And we started a newspaper called Wartime's Tiempo de Guerras. And it was bilingual. It was a tabloid. It came out every six weeks. We sent it around the country to over 700 peace and justice organizations in tiny little towns. They distributed it free around the country. We did that until 2004 when we ran out of money because everyone was putting money into defeating George W. Bush in the election. And this is, I think, what we need to remember, that even when liberal voices are running scared, oh, what a terrible mixed metaphor. (laughs) Even when liberals are running scared, we still have the power to raise our voices. And it's programs like yours, for example, that keep those voices alive. But that war times got you on a no-fly list. What do you think is the state right now of uh, (laughs) dissent here in the United States? What is the state, I should say, of prosecuting dissent here in the United States compared to back then? Oh, well, I mean, look at the only person from the CIA who has gone to prison in conjunction with torture, and that's John Kariaku, (laughs) who went to prison for blowing the whistle on it. So I would say that dissent is, um, you know, dissent is, is tolerated as a safety valve in the corners and the edges, but I think what happens is that in the center of media, in the center of the mainstream, there are certain things that become literally unthinkable. So, for example, to say that the attack against Iraq was not only a logistical and strategic mistake, but it was a criminal act under international law, that's unthinkable. You can't write an op-ed in the New York Times that says that. It won't get published. And so... I think that the state of dissent is is uh, better here than, say, in Turkey, but not great. Now, the no-fly list was um, – that was really funny because we were carrying a 1,000 copies of the paper in our luggage at the time that they stopped us, and they held us um, – Three, three police, armed police officers in the, in the airport in San Francisco held us for half an hour while they checked to see if we were on some kind of master list. And it, the story went on forever and ever. What they didn't know was that at the, or didn't figure out, was that at the time, my partner was actually working as a consultant for the local Northern California ACLU. So when we got back from that trip to visit my father and um, she told them what had happened, they said, oh, would you be interested in having us file an FOIA, uh, a FOIA request on um, on your behalf? And she said, of course. And then they, when we couldn't get anything from the FOIA request, they said, would you be interested in being plaintiffs in you know the first suit about a no-fly list? And we said, of course. 
And in fact, in the end, the judge, who is actually the brother of Stephen Breyer, the Supreme Court justice, the federal judge said, um, no, you may not know how you got on the list or whether you are still on it or not. You are entitled to know the actual names of the individuals who put the list together because as taxpayers, you are their employers. And he awarded $200,000 in court costs to the ACLU. So we sort of won and sort of lost. But um, yes, we did find ourselves on the no-fly list. I have to admit, because we are a couple of middle-aged white lesbians with a certain amount of privilege, we were never really terrified of what was going to happen to us. Even at the moment when the, when the police officer said, no, I couldn't walk across the lobby and get a drink of water because I was being detained, I was never really scared. But I wasn't picked up on a battlefield, sold for $5,000, like, you know, many of the Afghans who ended up in Guantanamo. I didn't, wasn't um, hooded and denuded and threatened with rape and pushed face forward into, into crushed glass and all the other things that have been described that happened to people at Bagram. And I didn't end up incommunicado in solitary confinement in Guantanamo for years. So I've been lucky. And um, to answer your question, I think we have to cultivate where dissent wherever we can, because it needs to be created and it needs to be nurtured. And that's what I try to do, oddly enough, in my classroom. I try to in my daily work in the classroom, not indoctrinate my students, but give them the tools for examining their world and making their own moral judgments about it. And my secret goal for every student in my classes is that each student emerges thinking of herself or himself as a citizen, not necessarily of a particular country, and a lot of my students are not from the U.S., but a citizen of the world, somebody who has a responsibility for the world. And that's, you know, it's a, it's retail, it's not wholesale, it's student by student. But that's my hope, is that I am sending out some thinking people into the world. Rebecca, it's been a pleasure. And as you were saying, too many Americans uh, acted in a cowardly fashion in the face of terror and we or torture, and we didn't stop torture. I just hope that more and more Americans are as fearless as a couple of middle-aged white lesbians are. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very much for being on the show. Take care. You got, everybody's got to go get her book, America Nuremberg. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. Again, Rebecca Gordon is the author of American Nuremberg. Alex, can you look up the title of this? How, is, the last thing in this is not the number 9-11, is it? Because um, according, to my script, according to my script, I have Rebecca Gordon is the author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11. <laughs> it just stops at uh, Fill in the blank after what happens 9-11. <laughs> exactly. For post-9-11 war crimes. War crimes. See, I knew it was cut off on here. Thank you very much, my friend. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more hell, visit thisishell.com. Hello again. This is Lindsay. 
manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Just tried to choose one of these things Chuck has written down here on these papers I got from his trash can. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rebecca Gordon from 2016. Fun little uh, throwback to Alex's voice there in the end. So now y'all are caught up on that. You're ready for Rebecca Rebecca to discuss her article in the near future once Chuck is well enough to reschedule that. I suppose that brings us to uh, sticky, drippy, rotten... I don't remember all the words that Chuck says, but this one is an emphasis on the sticky. Trying to find it. This email here from our writer, Rinaldo Migaldi, who wrote, who writes all of our rotten histories. And this is for the week of Tuesday, today's Tuesday, January 17th. But this, this rotten history is from January 15th, 1919, 104 years ago this week. And I have to say, this is one of the most intriguing ones I've read so far. I like this one, Ronaldo. I mean, other than the fact that it's rotten history, so like, how can you really like it? But yeah, I'll just read it. <laughs> On January 15th, 1919, 104 years ago this week, it was an unseasonably warm day in the north end of Boston, and a giant tank of molasses ruptured and exploded, releasing a lethal deluge of some two million gallons of the sticky fluid into the city streets. The cylindrical tank was owned by the U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company, which made its product from molasses. It was 50 feet high and 90 feet wide and had been built as the company rushed to profit from demand for alcohol by manufacturers of World War I munitions. Since the war's end the previous November, the company was now shifting toward production of grain alcohol for the consumer market, even as political momentum built toward prohibition of alcoholic beverages in the United States. But the giant tank had been built in a hurry and was poorly maintained. That, what a silly thing to do with so much molasses. Like, I got so much, so much molasses. Like, so let's just quickly build a tank and not take care of it. <laughs> it had sprung leaks and emitted strange rumbling sounds. The molasses in the tank had fermented, causing a rise in the pressure of carbon, dioxi carbon dioxide gas. And when the tank finally exploded, it made a sound witnesses described as like that of a machine gun. The force of the blast pushed nearby buildings off their foundations and sent big metal rivets flying through the air, causing major damage to elevated train tracks. A wave of thick, syrupy molasses 40 feet high poured into the surrounding streets knocking down more buildings and drowning people and animals who thrashed in vain to get free of the heavy substance. 21 people suffocated to death, along with 12 horses and countless dogs, cats, and other creatures. Another 150 people were injured. The cleanup effort went on for weeks afterward, as the movement of city residents and rescue workers caused the sticky, 
pungent molasses to be tracked all over the city and its suburbs, onto public transit, and even into private homes. A court later rejected the alcohol company's claim that its molasses tank had been sabotaged by anarchists and ordered it to pay damages amounting to almost 10 million of today's US dollars when adjusted for inflation. Meanwhile, the smell of molasses lingered throughout Boston for years. And I'll never think about molasses the same way again now that I know that. So thanks, Ronaldo. Yeah, I'm gonna blame capitalism on that one because for what other reason would you have a tank of molasses that's 50 feet high and 90 feet wide? You know, like, unless you're, that's capital, you know? That's a problem. So, yeah. Anyways, we have also a question from Hal. Which is... Which is... What advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement on your rights? What advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement on your rights. And honestly, I don't know which responses were read already. So let me just kind of tally these up here to the newest comments. I wanted to have this question. I thought of a response and then I realized my response didn't really make sense with the question. Like I read the question wrong or understood it differently. <laughs> Um, although I would say it's, it's kind of funny that it relates to Chuck's condition of having a stomach bug and not being able to leave the bathroom is I'm really fascinated by sewer systems, like how we need them in these urban systems, like have become so dependent on them. I learned that Chicago has like the most complicated extensive sewer system in the world and all I'm trying to say here is you know they say that <laughs> like if water plumbing is the safest way to handle waste because waste is human waste is so dangerous right like it I mean yeah it has pathogens but the thing is they often get spread by water like you mix human waste with water that's how pathogens spread and it's pretty illegal in Chicago to have compost toilets. And if you don't know what a compost toilet is, I refer you to a book that's free online called The Humanure Handbook. So anyways, it doesn't really make sense with the question because the government is wrong. Like water plumbing is not better for you and your planet's health. It's kind of bad for both of those things, but just, Nobody knows. Read the Humanure Handbook so that you know how hot composting works. Because that is the safest thing that you can do with human waste. It's a natural chemical reaction, compost, composting, that creates a lot of heat. It makes a lot of heat and it kills all the germs. And so if it just sits long enough, it's like Chicago, I learned what a pump house is. <laughs> like there's this pump house in Chicago near somewhere where I found an elderberry bush. And I was like, what's a pump house? So I went and looked it up and it's where a pump house pumps sewage 
to defy gravity. So typically sewage water, it flows with gravity, but if there's too much flowing in one direction and the sewers overflow and then the sewage gets into the environment, that's bad. So there are certain places in Chicago where the sewage needs to be pumped into another direction. And I just think it's so ridiculous. Like, yes, let's like get our waste to defy gravity, but like leaving it sitting and composting just by itself for six months to a year. Like we couldn't, that's, I'm just trying to say that's easier. That's less work than <laughs> building a pump house and upkeeping it, but whatever. <laughs> I'm sure this is a, it's a sensitive topic. People really don't like talking about human waste. And I find that very annoying because we literally all do it every single day. So like, why are we avoiding it so much? Like, yeah, that's why we want sewers underground. Pretend like they're not there. Anyways, <laughs> until they overflow when it rains and then somebody gets cholera. Okay, uh, back to the question from Hal, which is what advice that's good for you and the planet's health? Are you insisting is an infringement on your rights? So I'm just going to read all them on Facebook because I don't know which ones were read. John Tonkin says a diet that will cause me to produce less methane. That's funny. I No normal nomad. He says wear your effing mask. <sighs> True. I actually really like masks for a lot of reasons other than public health. Like, well, I guess it's just personal mental health. Like if you wear a mask and you're walking around outside, you can talk to yourself and people don't notice it nearly as much if you're not wearing a mask. And that helps me. I like to be able to talk to myself. Cody K says, how can I properly compensate if I don't buy the most fuel inefficient lifted truck and roll coal <laughs> all around the suburbs? Yeah, I just got a really like big flashback to college when I had this professor who just bragged about how much how much gas he burned driving his Toyota Tundra like 30 miles back and forth from where he lived to ASU every day. Like, all right. What advice that's good for you and your plan is health. Are you insisting is an infringement on your rights? What advice that's good for you, for, for you and the, for your and the planet's health. Are you insisting is an infringement on your rights? Neil C. I'd like to exercise my right not to exercise. <laughs> Very, yeah. I, like, it's kind of a privilege to have so many calories to burn, don't you think? That's how I feel about people who have time and money to pay and go to the gym. If you want to work out, there's grocery stores throwing away food all over the place and they're often like in very heavy boxes like 50 pound boxes of bananas or whatever and it is a workout and you don't have to pay anything for it and you can help people get food that would otherwise be thrown away so the last question he the last response to our question from how what advice that's good for your and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights from kim g not always being a ray of sunshine. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to always be a ray of sunshine and that's just fake. <laughs> we need authenticity around here. 
Mm, I think that's about... I'm going to leave the Twitter responses. I didn't look at them. Let me go look at them. Dan's got to have something to read tomorrow, though. And there's a few responses on here, so... If you're listening, please go ahead and submit your response before tomorrow. What advice that's good for you and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement of your rights? So... I think the last thing on the agenda here is... Who's on the show tomorrow? That's a good question. It's a good question. It's somewhere deep in my inbox. This week on This Is Hell. So, yes. Look forward in the future to the return of Rebecca Gordon, who we unfortunately couldn't have on today because Chuck was sick. And hopefully he will heal up by tomorrow. Which, I think oftentimes a stomach bug is, is pretty temporary, but... Keep them, in thought. Keep them in your thoughts. It's no fun. So Rebecca Gordon will eventually be on to talk about their newer article, American Exceptionalism, on full display, why this country might want to lower its expectations. And tomorrow, given that Chuck feels better, we will have reporter, public records requester, researcher, Julia Rock, joining us to discuss her article at The Lever... How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. New research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. Yeah, my sister works in, in drug research at a children's hospital for, uh, what are they called, autoimmune conditions? Um, and... That's crazy to me that they don't even spend that much on the drug research and development because, like, they get free lunch from the pharma reps, like, all the time. Like, I don't know. They have a lot of money. But we'll have to... I'll have to tune in tomorrow to listen to Julia Rock. And... Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me of profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.